everyone. Welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. My name is Corey. I'm here with my husband, Matlock. Uh, and on this show, on the weekend show, it is a new year. This is the first episode of the year. This is season two, episode one. We're, like always, going through the Bible again this year. So we're starting fresh, fresh this week in Genesis. Matlock, how about you let everyone know what we were supposed to read this week to, you know, go through with our reading plan yes. at Bible Discovery. So welcome if you, uh, you know, if you're new. Uh, we read the Bible in one year. So we're beginning things off from Genesis 1 to 22 this week, which is a lot of reading. It is. Yeah. It is a lot of reading. But I, I find this part of Genesis, I, I find Genesis and Exodus pretty readable, yes. pretty pretty enjoyable because it's mostly narrative, right? So it's yes. mostly the stories of ancient people's lives. Yeah, and it's the and beginning. It's so so it's, it's really interesting because anytime you read the beginning of something, it's always really It sets up so intriguing. many premises, yes. right? So it sets up what the Bible is going to be all about. Yes. And that's exciting because if you can understand the beginning, the beginning structure, then everything that follows has a proper order. Makes yes, sense. For sure. So this is a, I love this. This part of the year is great. Yeah, I, love I agree. It. <laughs> so yeah, if, if you're taking it along here, then that's great. Welcome to Bible Discovery, uh, where we read through the Bible one year. Yeah. And we're, today we have a bunch of your questions that we're answering pertaining to Genesis 1 to 22. So then some of them regarding um, whether or not, you know, who was God speaking to when he said, I'll make man in my image? Was he talking to the angels or to himself? Talk about Cain and Abel. What does that look like? Was Cain's sacrifice legitimate or was it illegitimate based on just because they're vegetables? And we're also talking about different things regarding a lot and other things to do with creation. So uh, that's a lot, uh, uh, Abraham's nephew. So a lot to talk about. Lots. A lot to cover because it's a lot of human history. Yeah. Right. So Corey, how about I kick things off? Please. With the Genesis 1 question. Yep. Genesis 1 verse 2 question to be exact. Um, I have a question for Corey. If you say Satan was cast down when he was sent out of Eden... What then made the earth to all of the sudden become without form and void as seen in Genesis 1 to 2? Right. Now, to be very clear in this, you haven't been the one harping on this, let's say, throughout the year. <laughs> I have not taken no, a I, position on when Satan te fell. Te technically, it's been me. So, but, but you know what? We're married. Yeah, it's fair. It's so, fair. Yeah, but, so <laughs> We're this two is all your sides fault. of the same coin It's all your point. fault for taking this view. <laughs> Anyways, um, this is, so I should say, this is from user... This is from user SQ4IN2CS4S. Nice and simple. Nice Love and it. simple, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Anyways, so uh, let's answer. Let's just read Genesis 1 to 2 because this this actually pertains to... You mean 1 verse 1 and 2? Genesis 1 okay. verses 1. So I was like, if we're going to read Genesis 1 to 2, that's... Sorry. Buckle up. That's yes. a long read. Sorry, verses 1 and verses 2. That's right. <laughs> Let me just read it. Just that laugh. Sure. All right. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then it goes on to say, then God made light in the creation days. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the reason why I think this question is being asked, which is what then made the earth all of a sudden without form and void, right? Yeah. It's because this pertains to gap theory or the, the, um, uh, the ruin reconstruction view, which is essentially that verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then all of a sudden... The Bible doesn't say it, but there's this war that happens with Satan falling, and there's this, and it's called gap theory, essentially. So the earth's been around for billions of years. Sure, right? yeah. It fell. That's what happened. And then God recreates everything mm -hmm. after this point. Then the earth was without form and void because of the war that <laughs> right. happened, because of the evil, right? The darkness over the face of the deep. And then God 
repurposes, reconstructs it. Right. Like regenerates it in a sense. Right. And, so. and from what I understand, there's a big, they put a lot of emphasis on trying to, like people who who um, advocate for this theory yeah. uh, put a lot of emphasis on the word translated into English was. Right. So the earth was without form and void. And they argue that it should be translated became uh, without form and void, meaning that it was ordered and then it became chaotic. Right. But as far as I'm aware, and haven't read extensively into this issue, but that's a tenuous reconstruction. And I would just encourage people, if you're curious about that, to do some research on that and on the English translation of this verse. Uh, I've, I've read a few articles indicating that that is like tenuous at best to translate it became formless and void. So there's a lot of um, assumption that goes into this ruin reconstruction theory or this gap yes. theory that there's this massive gap between Genesis 1 verse 1 and Genesis 1 verse right. 2. And I have a lot of difficulty with it because we don't read about that anywhere else in scripture. So to hold it as, you know, an orthodox position, I don't think is tenable. I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, you can hold it as a theory, sure, but there's no, as far as I'm aware, there's no other compelling scriptural evidence anywhere for for us to read it like well, that. And even a theory needs to be tenable with evidence. That's what I mean. And so there's, there's no evidence at all that this gap theory even potentially exists. Right. Um, because we're just assuming that without form and void means that there's something that went wrong, as opposed to God creating everything and it was without purpose. Yeah. And then uh, over the course of the creation days, he then gives everything purpose. Yeah. So, and you right. see that confusion in the construction of this question where user uh, says, <laughs> user, <that's laughs> user 4S, I'm just going <laughs> to skip, I'm going to like dot, dot, dot 4S, yeah, yeah. Um, says, uh, what then made the earth all of a sudden to become without form and void? Right. So he's assuming that it wasn't without form and void, and then all of a sudden it was, whereas a natural reading of the text, a more natural reading of the text, I think, is that it's saying, in the beginning, God created right. the heavens of the earth. Now here's how he did it. The earth was without right. form, it was void. Now, and then God said, right. right? And then he began building. In a, in, you're, you're talking about how, if it's orthodox or not. I, I know this view came about in the 1700s. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the reasons why it kind of became popular was because of the ancient earth thesis, which was which is still around today. The earth is billions of years old, mm -hmm. right? Based on our distant starlight, all these other uh, you know scientific rhetoric and evidence that people are putting forth. Yep. So they're like, okay, well, the earth is really old. Maybe this is where it's potentially right. is old. Right. And okay, sure, you're trying to figure that out. But again, there's just no evidence to suggest that anything's happening in between. Yeah. And even the fact that it's without form and void doesn't mean that something went wrong. Right. It just means God created something and he didn't, He's in the process of completing it. Yeah, he's so in he, the process of ordering his creation. And right. that's what we see the whole purpose of Genesis chapter 1. I think very clearly is that God is not only the creator, but as the creator, the intelligent creator, he's ordering creation. He's right. giving it purpose. He's giving. He's making it make sense. That's right. right. Like he's the author of the DNA of the universe and the DNA of the human being. So it's showing how God is this creative force. He has this creative power. He has this ordering power. So the, you know, verse two emphasizing that the earth was void. It was purposeless. It was orderless. It was chaos. And in, in, in like kind of the ancient mindset, you can use that terminology. I think a lot of scholars of the ancient Near East use that the terms chaos and order and how ancient right. man saw this 
this uh, constant battle between chaos and order and how yeah. it was the humanity's job and the job of kings, like the mighty men uh, and women to to bring order to the chaos. And and it's interesting to trace that back here to, to Genesis 1, how it's God bringing order. Right. Um, and then, and then, uh, you know, in, in Genesis two, giving that command to Adam right. and Eve to, you know, um, have dominion over the creation, right. kind of extend, um, the, the order of God throughout the entire yes. earth. So it's an interesting theme of, so rather than seeing up without form and void as a problem, I see without form and a void, uh, without, form and void as an establishment of God's character. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And um, I think that pretty much hits the question on the head. Now, to pre- and just to further reflect on this a little bit, um, if you say Satan was cast down w- uh, when he was sent out of Eden, because that's what I was saying. Through a- that's your kind of theory. Your- well, yeah, just like based on the text, like the only time Satan falls in the very beginning is in Eden. So it's like, like, so in my view, it's like we're, anytime we're saying, oh, well, it happened before this, it's like, well, all evidence suggests that it happened at this moment when he tricked everyone. Not to say that, you know, there wasn't pride brewing before, but this was kind of like the linchpin scenario. Um, his act of rebellion and his, trying to get Adam and Eve to sin. Exactly. So this was so like him yeah. like moving forward on that conduct. So he has like the the beliefs brewing up, but then he, and rather than, you know, repent or whatever it is, whatever, at that, however the angel system works, I really don't know. But he actually moves forward with this, his ambitions, uh, which leads to sin. Anyways, so uh, so yeah, I would say that just pertaining to Genesis 3 and the fall itself, I think that if you were to take a view of, say, that, you know, Satan didn't fall or whatever this is, this is not Satan's fault. It, it was just, it happened sometime before. You'd have to show where there's evidence in the text of that at all. Because even in Ezekiel 28, where it's it's positing... Um, Satan was there in the beginning and all these things, right? Right, you were because in Eden. You were in Eden, mm-hmm. you were beautiful. He's talking about how good Satan mm-hmm. was. And then it goes, but then you fell. Mm-hmm. So even Ezekiel 28 speaks about Satan being good in Eden, and then he falls. So it's like all the evidence that I've ever read is pointing to this fact that Satan's actually falling here. And this is like this moment where the cosmos, both celestial and terrestrial, fall at the same time. Um, anyways, so... Obviously, we don't have all the the details, mm-hmm. and that's intentional, right? And uh, but I think that just just based on the, what we have in the text alone, I think the fairest assumption that you can make is that this is when he fell. I'm not saying this is like, boom, it's over. It has to be right on, there, yeah, right, right. But it's like <laughs> yeah. it seems like I, I yeah. really don't see either way around it. So, um, anyway, so that's my two cents on that. Uh, Let us know what you guys think about the gap yeah. theory, about there being a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And let us know what you think about Satan falling as well. I'd love to read your comments if you're watching on YouTube. Okay, right. Malak, I have a question for you. Sure. Also from Genesis 1, this is from Lisa W. And she says, a teacher told the students that in Genesis, where God says, let us create man in our image, that God is referring to the heavenly host, not the Trinity. I've always believed that to refer to the triune Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Will you please help me with this as my daughter was in that Bible class? Sincerely, Lisa. Okay. So I'll just read Genesis uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 26. Mm-hmm. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that, uh, that is on the face of the, of the earth, and every tree with its seed and in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Anyways, I'll pause there. So um, the question then becomes, when, when God says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, right? Is he saying that together with the angels, like, oh, angels, let's make man in our image, like right. collectively, right, as a spiritual being? Or is he saying, or is, is he communicating the Trinity where God says, let's make man in our image, like the Trinity speaking? Yeah. Now, the question comes down to, who is he speaking to? Because clearly when God's speaking the world into existence, he's speaking these things into existence. So he has to say it out loud. Right? That's kind of how it works. So um, if the angels were made, right? We knew this in Job. The angels were at the foundations of the earth. So the angels are around. Is God saying, does it preclude angels necessarily? I think it does and it doesn't. So here's what I'm saying. I don't think it's like, oh, when she's, when um, Elisa says it's not, uh, it definitely does not refer to the Trinity. Um, I think it does refer to the Trinity, but I, I think that if God is speaking, he doesn't necessarily need to speak to himself. He could be like, look, angels, I'm going to make man in, in our image, in my image. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? So you could even... In other words, like a being, uh, like an intelligent being, yes. something different than the animals. So my point in saying that is a, he could still be speaking to the angels about what he's going to do, but referring to himself as our. So that there's no, there's no compromise in the text there if he's speaking to angels about what he's going to do about with man. Because... There's, there's evidence that suggests that part of the reason why Satan fell, I say evidence, but it's more so just like by implications when you read in the text, is through jealousy that mankind was made in man's image and angels are not made in man's image. So it doesn't make sense. You mean God's image. So, yes. Yeah. Mankind was made in God's image, but angels you. were not made in God's image. That's right. Yeah. Because I don't believe, and this is where uh, Lisa's right, that God's saying, let us make man in our image. Like, yeah, there's the no, there's nowhere in the scripture that implies that man is made in the image of an angel. Right. Right. In fact, the opposite is true. Where I mean, when you see some of these angelic beings being described in Ezekiel and Isaiah, right. they they have they have a somewhat similar appearance to man, but there's a lot more animalistic expressions as well. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that what's happening here is that God's saying. If, if he's speaking to angels and not just declaring it with his voice, what he intends to do, because he is, it is the Trinity and it is about the Trinity, mm -hmm. um, that he could be speaking to angels is what I'm saying, but what his, right, but what, what he's doing. So in that sense, it's like, okay, that's fine. Um, I, and I have no issue with that. I think the issue would only come in is when he says, oh, let's make it an hour image. All of a sudden, we're in, we're, we're in the, the image of the heavenly host, not in the image of God. Exactly. Which doesn't make a whole lot of sense given what follows in the scriptures. Right. Yeah. Now, the argument that the reason why people think that is because the word Elohim that's used is often used for a spiritual being in general, for the yep. lowercase g gods. So you have people who, um, uh, you know, you, you read this in 1 Samuel, when Samuel comes up and rises from the dead and Saul's like, oh, it's you. That's an Elohim. It's a spirit. Yeah. It's a spirit. Uh, in uh, what is it, Psalm 92, where it says, and the God of the, the Elohims, mm -hmm. right? So it's the God of gods, 
um, and those gods. Either way, the point I'm trying to say is that, so the word here that's used is Elohim, so it's let us create man in our image. People are like, oh, well, Elohim could be spirits, beings in general, so therefore it must be us and the angels. Um, however, you know, depending what you believe, if you're a Jew, you wouldn't believe that, of course, because you don't believe in the Trinity. But if you're a Christian, it makes much more sense, the rendering of the text, to it being Trinitarian. Um, and, you know, I, I, just, I just, I don't really see a way around it, to be honest. Um, I don't think you can make uh, the man are made in an in, in angel's image at all. Um, but again, yeah, and it, yeah. but it, but again, that doesn't that doesn't preclude the idea of there being a heavenly oh, host. There definitely is a heavenly are, host. Job says they're there. Yeah, and yes, Job so. talks about them being like the sons of God. So there's different colloquial terms that mankind has used throughout history, and even in the Old Testament of the Bible, right. man has ascribed to these angelic these spiritual beings, these angelic beings, to right. describe them. Right. Um, uh, so it doesn't mean that there isn't a heavenly host, but right. I, but it, it's a very, it's a strange argument to say. I think it's a strange argument to say that God is saying that we are made in the general image of the heavenly host and right. not in the special image of God. I don't think that follows. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah. Cause I, part of the reason why Satan wants to destroy us is because we're made in God's image. Yep. And part of our redemption is because we're made in God's image. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a whole bunch of theology that's tied to God's image um, that you can't just dismiss. Yeah, the sanctity of human life. Yeah, and there's, there's so there's, much There's it. so much so, that flows from it. I think there's a danger in saying that we're made in the, the image of angels. Absolutely. It's very, it's um, a bit, no, it's very dangerous. Like, let's be clear off the top. It is a dangerous <laughs> concept. Yeah, yeah. Like, the, the sanctity of human life comes from the fact that right. we are made in the image of God and that we have a special and unique purpose in the earth. Right. Right. And, yeah. and, and this is why Christianity can teach that every human life is sacred. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All Do you right. have anything else you want to add to this, Corey? No, I don't think so. All right, let me hit you with another question then. This pertains to Genesis 3. Okay. Sure. It's a viewer question from Tosin. Tosin. Mm-hmm. We believe that God sees everything and knows the end from the beginning. Then why was he looking for Adam in the garden of the cold of the day when he visited him? Right. Right. Why even ask? Why even ask? Because he was looking for an answer. Not that he needed the knowledge, but that he was trying to draw an answer out of mankind. Like we know, okay, if you're a parent, you intrinsically do this, right? When your child misbehaves, you know that they've misbehaved. If they're lying, you know that they're lying, especially young children, right? Really young children because they don't have the mental capacity to trick you yet. So you don't just go, you're lying. You, you say, why are you lying to me? Why are you not telling mommy the truth? What's going on? Why aren't you telling me the truth? And, and, um, or are you, is that the truth? Are you telling the truth right now? <laughs> when they tell you something that is obviously a lie. <laughs> I could just say to my son, you're clearly lying to me. Now let's, let's discuss this. Or I could say, hold on. Are you sure that you're telling me the truth? And give your child the chance to speak back to you. We all do this intrinsically as human beings, right? And and we see God do it as well. We see God do it here with Adam and Eve, but we see him do it do it throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament as well. It, you know, in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus asks so many questions and when you study it, I I think the natural conclusion is that God is trying to draw out an answer from us because it is inherently beneficial for us to have to formulate answers. Right? We can just, we can live in a lot of self-denial 
And a lot of, um, we can live in a way where we're just going through the motions and we're not actually realizing why we're doing the things that we're doing. Sometimes we don't even realize that we're doing the things that we're doing because we have built-in defense mechanisms, fight and flight and all that kind of stuff, right? But when we're forced to answer a question, we actually have to think, oh, wait, why am I doing the thing that I'm doing, right? So God doesn't just ask, where were you? Where are you? He doesn't just ask, where are you? That's his opening question. Where are you? Reveal yourself to me. And um, then God asks, who told you that you were naked? So he's drawing answers out of Adam, Adam and Eve, and, and forcing them to think about the situation that they found themselves in, which makes a lot of sense, especially because Adam and Eve are currently afraid, right? And when you're afraid, you very often go into that place of just survival. You're just doing things off of instinct. You're hiding because you're scared. You're not really thinking uh, clearly. So yeah, I, 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 this cannot be used as proof against God's omniscience, his, his all-knowing nature or, or all-present nature. This is definitely God teaching it's, Adam and Eve and, and drawing them into conversation. It's actually evidence of his compassion. Yeah, I think that's a great answer because I think, like I said before, that's evidence of his compassion. And, um, but there is something else to be said because I know that there's a whole like wave of people today being like, oh, look, like, there's there's two extremes. Either questions are all bad. Right. Don't question anything. Just memorize the Bible and that's it. Right. And if then, the Bible says it, you just believe right. it. Blank statement. Don't think about it. <laughs> yeah. Just believe the exact words yeah. in English. Exactly. And then also, it's <laughs> Which is absurd. life is only questions. Right. right. That's the other extreme. Also absurd. I've heard this. I, and it's it's like, what's the there answer? There are meaning no of life? real answers. Yeah, exactly. Right. The, the meaning is in the question that's itself. Right. The wisdom is in asking the question. The question which, is the answer. Which is absurd. It, yeah. it, it, it goes against the concept of there being an actual reality, an actual truth. Yes. That God is truth. There, there is such a thing as tru truth. There are answers. I mean, you can look at, and I know some progressive Christians do this. Not all of them, but some progressive Christians, progressive Christians, at least the ones that I've spoken to, do this where they're like, why are you so obsessed with answers? Like we need to be able to hold more, more things in tension in life. We need to be able to ask more questions. Like I am not against asking questions. It is one of the greatest things that you can do, I think, is to be curious about the world and ask questions. Be curious about God. Be curious of the Bible. Ask questions. This is, this is, you know, we see God doing this. We see Jesus doing that. There is truth in that. Just, asking questions is valuable. Well, yeah, the, but their yeah. questions are asked to be answered. Well, and <laughs> Not to just stay there forever. Where does a question come from? It comes from like wonder and awe. Right. Like you're like so blown away by how amazing something is, let's say. And you're like, how did this come to be? Like, right. And so you ask those questions because it's something so wonderful. So it's kind of, to me, it's kind of like. It, def it, it defeats the purpose of a question if you're asking it to appear wise. Right. Well, that's right. right? Yeah. A real question comes from a place of curiosity, like you're saying. Right. But it just becomes hypocritical if you're like, by asking this question and not answering it, I am going to be wise. <laughs> there is no answer. I know. So wise. I, know. I heard that. Like, oh, guys, <laughs> that yeah. defeats the purpose of, be, of, of asking questions in the first place, which is to gain wisdom. It's to gain knowledge, not to just appear self-righteously right. wise. And when people right? say there are no answers, there's only questions, it's like, well, isn't that an answer then? 
Yeah, so that's that's the answer. That's the answer, yeah. That is the the truth. That <laughs> there is no truth. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it is. But, so so I mean, there's. I, I definitely encourage asking questions. Right. I think we need to ask more questions. With right. ask questions of the text. Ask questions about the meaning and the intention and what God is trying to show us and what that means for the world. But strive for answers. And it's true. I mean, ultimately, there are some there are some topics that we're not going to have absolute clarity on. Yes. And that's okay because I, I think there there are things that God leaves for us to need to trust Him right. on. Um, but at the same time, He 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 wants us to reason with Him, and He wants us to ask ask Him questions. I mean, consider what He said to the prophet Jeremiah: "Ask of me, Jeremiah, and I will tell you the I will tell you great and unsearchable things." Right. So there's 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 a purpose to questions, and it's not to make ourselves seem wise. Yes. Or Go just on. or just as an excuse to stop well, being curious. Well, that's the thing. So sometimes people use questions, say, as a way to be like, see, like, I, I, I defeated your point. Mm -hmm. Like, they'll use the question as if, like, I somehow refuted your argument. Right. And it's kind of, you see this often in anti-Christian rhetoric. Yes. It's like, but it's more so like an emotional question. It's like, well, see, this, it's like, well, you haven't really dissected it well. Um but yeah, I like it's, you're totally right. Like questions are so important, and again, it comes from this place of like beauty. It's like like if you're sincerely seeking, and you're actually looking at the world for like to you know, let's say it's creation, you want mm -hmm. like you're not doing it because like if you're doing it because you want to be like the greatest like person of all time, you're doing it at a completely wrong motives. Right. It's like you seek because you seek the answer because like it's so like amazing that the world is the way it is mm -hmm. that it's so consistent. Right. And it's like how the hydroelectrical cycle like is is so perfect. Like even that, you see what I'm saying? It's like the fact that we have fresh water coming in all the time. Yeah. It's like and it goes up to the clouds, it comes back down. It's like, that's amazing. <laughs> it is. I, it's actually amazing that we, we take it for granted. It's like, oh yeah, it's just clouds. It's like, oh man, it's like like anyways. The point is, is that like the awe, wonder, and beauty is what creates the questions. And it's what draws you towards a firm answer. Mm -hmm. So what does that firm answer look like? Well, ultimately, it's God. So it's like if you actually have a sense of wonder and beauty, it's like that's going to draw you towards God. And I think that's an amazing thing. Um, so, yeah, I think questions are good. Yeah, me too. So, Corey, let's move on. I'm pro-question. You're pro-question? <laughs> pro. All right. Pro-question pro against human hypocrisy, especially my own. Yes. <laughs> And that's another reason why questions are good. Mm -hmm. Because you might be so convicted in your own opinion mm -hmm. that you need someone to ask the right questions yeah. to knock you out of your own stupid convictions. Agreed. Right? Sometimes your convictions are just stupid. It's just the way it is. Agreed. Yeah. Right. All right. So <laughs> Genesis 4. All right. This is comes from Linda. And she asks, I always I always wondered why God didn't, uh, this is a line, but like Cain's offering of his gardens, but liked Abel's. Did God just like blood sacrifice and didn't uh, Cain know this? But after e emailing you, I looked it up and I guess it was Cain's harder attitude versus Abel's giving of his best flock. I had know this and I'm 72. All right, Corey, but would you have any comments on this? Like what's going on here? Why didn't uh, God like Cain's offering? Is it just because of his heart or what's going on? Yeah, so I know there, there are a bunch of different takes on this, yeah. but I think the text really does bear out that it was an attitude, it was a heart issue, rather than a blood sacrifice versus a grain offering. Because we know that tithing was a thing. Tithing offerings were absolutely a thing. And that seems to be how this offering is set up, right? Because we are told first, before we're told of what they offered, 
we're given why they offered what they offered, right? So verse, uh, verse two of chapter four tells us, now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So it gives us their job description. Abel, you know, keeps sheep. Cain is a farmer. He, he works the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. So this seems to be a tithe. Yeah. Right, a tithe offering where, uh, you know, God's blessed me with an abundant harvest and now I'm going to give some back to God. And it says, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So Abel does the same thing with what God has given to him. He's been very productive. And so he brings of the first fruits and, and, the, and the fat portions. So all the best parts of that animal to God. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And so um, I, I think what we see there is an unhelpful attitude from Cain. I know this is reading into the text a little bit, but notice it says right away, Cain became angry. Well, why didn't Cain instead go, why aren't you accepting my offering? Right. Right? Why do we go immediately to anger and our face falling? And we, as we continue to read, we see that it's because Cain is being tempted to sin. He has an, an um, overt jealousy for his brother, Abel. And that, je that jealousy is brewing. That anger and jealousy and resentment towards Abel clearly has been brewing for a while because you don't just go from, man, I'm jealous of my brother to I'm going to murder my brother. Yes, right. You don't just, that's a, that's a big leap, right? So this has clearly been brewing for a really long time. We're human beings. So we can, we can understand this concept of going, you know, from a resentment of a brother to, to outright anger. And, and God talks to Cain about this, right? Where he says, you know, sin, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. It wants you, but you must master it, right? So um, I don't think the text bears out the fact that, oh, it's just because Cain gave the wrong offering. I don't necessarily think that's true, but I definitely think we can point to Cain's heart and his anger being an issue here. Um, yeah, I mean, even when you even when you you fast forward then to the the New Testament, where the New Testament talks about, you know. Before you come in God, come to God in prayer. Make sure that you, for, if you, if you have something against your brother, forgive him first and then come to God. Like make your human relationships right so that you can have a right relationship with God. Right. So I think that's what we see bared out here in yeah. Genesis four. What I, do you think? No, I agree. It has, I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that it's a grain offering versus a sheep offering. Mm. We know and, both of those offerings were acceptable exactly. in terms of tithing, in terms right. of um, first fruits and stuff right. like that. I don't think this was the best of his flock. That's sorry, yeah, the best right. of his crop. Right. Right. It was the best of Abel's. I think that's part of the issue. And that tell and that's the hint mm. that he's been this Perhaps been Cain for a has while. kept the best for himself. That's right. And it's been brewing for a while that he's yeah. felt felt this way, right? Yeah. Um now I think you're spot on. And I think there's other like further reflections here that you can see. Like one thing I think that we often take for granted is how well written and curated Genesis is in terms of its narrative content. So like one thing, this is kind of like a sidebar, I just wanted to mention this, is the fact that when Cain, it says Cain's a worker of the ground, when we read ground, when we look at this word, it's the same thing as man. 
Okay, so it's the same word, earth, ground, dust. That's where mankind comes from. So you have something here where um, Abel, who's always, who's throughout church history, is seen like a, as like a type of Christ, right? He's like the, the, the sheep herder, he bears a sheep, and he's martyred, right? He's seen as like the first martyr. And Cain, what he does is, as a worker of the ground, is basically like the very first person to carry on, in the text at least, that's, that's indicating in the text, in terms of its narrative content, uh, the curse. Because on the ground, you will work the, you will work the yeah. ground with thistles. So he's like the direct re- result of the curse, basically. He's working the ground in a literal sense. Mm-hmm. So then what does he do? With his uh, with his material that he uses to work the ground, well, he kills his brother, which is the ground. Yeah, and then he buries him like a seed. Yeah, in the ground, and his and his blood goes into the ground, like like kind of like what water would do. So it like waters the ground. Um, so you have this like really rich irony and parallels happening here with not only what what Christ is going to do, but also with what man's heart is like. Mm-hmm. And um, it's like to the dust to the ground from the dust you are and the dust you shall return. Yeah. And that is unrighteously. Cain's destruction. Exactly. In a very literal sense, he has destroyed the image of God and sown it in the ground. Exactly. And now he's going to reap destruction. Right. And then what do we know? Who is this? Who's the one doing? Well, we know that sin was crouching at his door. Who mm-hmm. is sin? Who is the one who's causing this? Satan. Mm-hmm. Satan's literally crouching at his door, right? With strange voices getting into his head and he you know, gives into it. Yeah. He gives into this temptation and his, and his desire for sin. And um, what I think is just, you know, just to add more fascination to this whole story, is this, the way that the narrative builds upon itself. So it goes from there and it goes from, okay, so man's made in the image of God from dust you are and dust you shall return, right? And everyone's is of, of the ground. And then literally what God is setting up in, his, in, his, uh, in Genesis 3 is like, okay, you know, man shall rule over women, right? It's like this is the consequence of the curse, and um, man shall man shall till the uh, till the ground. He's setting up these situations that are consequences because death is now involved. Mm-hmm. God's not saying, "Oh, you're going to murder people." So this is like Abel is a direct reversal. Uh, no, I shouldn't say reversal, but of the consequences, like you can't get a more explicit result of dust you are and dust you shall return with Abel. So Abel unrighteously is martyred, right? Basically, as uh, and it's really interesting that this is like prophetic. This becomes like an establishing feature because not only is the lamb originally the clothing that you wear, but he's a shepherd of these lambs, mm-hmm. right? The lamb was the first first animal to be slain. And then you have the, the, the what comes later is Abel, who's the sheep herder of these, right? Is the one who's also killed. So it's like you have this double parallel here uh, of, of a man who... Uh, who, who uses animals to clothe us, mm-hmm. which is Christ, right? Is the one who's going into the ground, right? Un- unjustly. Mm. Um, and that's just like in this one little snippet here. But when you really, when you really press the text, I think that the, the narrative, and this is everywhere. Like there's so many, there's so many rich details like this everywhere. Anyway, I just want to mention that because I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, the, but, the, there's, de- there's amazing richness in in these stories yeah in these histories of this there's, there's so much of it and i just can't get into it all today but anyways that's it so Corey, let me ask you another question sure okay so this or yeah you know what Corey, let's both talk about this question okay this has to do with genesis 6 to 10 all right uh didn't uh, this is from uh, this is from linda again did noah really bring insects on the ark and how is this possible 
Because there are millions of kinds of bugs. Did we really bring stink? Do we really need stink bugs, spiders, <laughs> and mosquitoes? I guess the Bible does say every creepy thing. Okay. Um, now, I do know Ryan has answered this question. It's on the website. So if anyone is particularly interested in this, he's got like a pretty big uh, Q&A on it. It's on the website. You can find it if you go on there. I think it's, I can't remember what, exactly what question number it is, but it's definitely on the website. If you click Ryan's name under the read section, or if you go to Q&A, you can find it there. Um, either way, Corey, what do you think? Did Noah really bring insects on the ark? I mean, probably. Yeah, it really does seem that way. It really does seem that way. I, I don't think that, it, like, I think it's definitely possible that some bug species survived. That I mean, we know plant species survived. Right. There's floating seeds. There's pl plants can survive a lot of crazy things. Yeah. A lot of crazy. Uh, yeah. And I think bugs probably can too. But yeah, yeah. I think I think the, the text is pretty clear. It's it does say every cube. I don't know. Probably. <laughs> yeah. It's, probably yeah. they're here, right? right. Like I can only assume. Yeah. I can only assume that the ones that couldn't survive popped on the ark. We know that the sea creatures didn't pop on the ark, even though a lot of them probably would have died in in the chaos of the crazy waters. I can imagine. Yes. But yeah, the, the who am I to earth, say? Everything was breaking open. There's like earthquakes, right? Yeah. Explosions from the fountain of the deep coming up. It was just like. Possibly volcanoes. It sounds pretty pretty chaotic. It's yeah, it was total chaos. Yeah. So um, yeah, it does seem that way. Whether or not you know, I think everyone. I mean, like, were all those ants there that the, they like <laughs> ants can create raft, right? Our son, yes. <laughs> our son loves bugs. It's a thing I'm getting used to. Our son <laughs> loves bugs. Our oldest son, and he's got this ant book, and we know that there are ants that create rafts out of yeah, their they little bodies, each other and that creates like a little bubble. Like, there's bubbles inside yeah. there, and and when you push them down, they pop back up. So, like, did those guys have to go on the ark? Fire I don't know. Do probably that. not. Who yeah. knows? No, either way. But the, yeah, <laughs> the point is, it seems that way. Or however it was, I think what everyone has in their mind is that you know the animals gathered two and two. And they're all like lined up. You know those like children's Right. Books? So it's like they're like little then, cockroaches know, little coming ants, two by like, two. Two, two by two and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. I imagine being much more chaotic than that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, sound, it sounds chaotic. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. <laughs> However it worked. Yes. I'm going to say yes. That's my general answer. But yeah. Check yeah, out. Check so. out Ryan's article. He, he dug into it. He deep. will do a better job than I just did. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. He will do a better That's job right. than I just did. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I didn't do much other. I'm like, yes. That's my, yes. yes. That's my answer. Yes. Probably. Yeah. Yes. Seems so. <laughs> but also, I will say every creeper thing doesn't necessarily mean bugs. It's true. Right? Usually those refer to like smaller lizards. Um, like those are small little critters you see. It little doesn't, mice? Right. Would that be a creeping thing or would that be a crawling thing? Snakes? Uh, yeah. Creeping? Well, it's small. This means small animals. It's really small critters. Yeah. Right? I don't know. Just chihuahuas? No. They weren't around. But. <laughs> I don't think small. there was a whole lot of like <laughs> overbred chihuahuas no, running small. around. Yeah, that means small animals. But the point here I'm trying to make is <laughs> if I could see one animal from the past, though, I've got to say, I've got to say, it would be you, 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 okay. I, and I don't know the fossil evidence for this, but so don't crucify me, please. But, but you know how they say there's little tiny, tiny dinosaurs that are not lizards, but they would have looked a lot like lizards, but they were like little tiny dinosaurs, yes. like little itty. Itty bitty ones, mm. and they say that most dinosaurs were sheep size. Yeah, I would like to see a little itty bitty dinosaur. Yeah, because then you don't need, you don't need to be scared of it. Yeah, it's not gonna eat you. It's true. Well, little itty bitty. You know, I will I say this though. Be cool. <laughs> Some in the insects are actually brilliant. Like insects are brilliant. Like, I just... like the super organisms of like that you have with like the yeah. ants, the termites, right? Mm -hmm. The 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 bees, the wasps. Yeah. Okay. 
Even wasps are able to learn instructions, not wasps, sorry, bees are able to learn instructions. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're able to demonstrate enough intelligence to solve yeah. puzzles. So it's, uh, it's, I struggle because I quite, want to like insects. Yeah. But I struggle are, in real life yes. with the concept of them like getting caught in my hair. It's quite remarkable. I, <laughs> yes, I understand. But uh, insects are actually quite remarkable. When, Anyways. I got to say, like when Emerson brings in a jar of right. fresh insects from outside in the summertime. Right. I encourage it. He, he can keep them for a couple hours, but on the inside, it's the yeah. factor. I know <laughs> we're getting off now, but, no, but <laughs> Noah's Ark inspired it. Right. I, I will say this. You don't need ants two by two coming in. The ants go march. Anyways, you don't really need that, I would mm-hmm. say. I think what you like, you could, I, I like, it's saying they came two by two, but they could be more. There's other animals that didn't. I think the, what was it? Some of the, uh, the clean animals, they, they more came in. Yeah. Right. For um, sacrifices. Right. Seven. So, so if that's seven. the case, it's not always two by two. So it's, yeah, there could have been more. Seven right? pairs. I don't even see a problem with the colonies coming in and just like it's inhabiting it. Um, right. Or surviving on like uh, like lumber that's, you know, trees would be uprooted, right? Um, yeah, bugs are pretty hardy. Bugs are pretty hardy. That's right. I also don't have a problem with there being high ground that's not completely steeped in uh, also. I know people are, are like Whoa. adamantly against that. Whoa. But it's like... <laughs> Yeah. I'm I'm teasing you I at this know, point, but, but I, I know I, there's yeah. I I just am fine with there being some high ground. Like I, all right, was the world flood? Yes. What does that mean? Like, every single aspect. It's like well, Noah's Noah had nothing, but that doesn't mean globally, right? Anyways, it doesn't matter. It's really not a big deal. I don't have the, all the answers, um, and we're just gonna move on. Write all your angry comments towards Matlock <laughs> down below. <laughs> That's right. All right, Corey. Uh, yes. Genesis 19. We're skipping ahead. Genesis 19. Quite okay. a bit, actually. We skipped everything, right? That yeah, we're answering viewer questions. That's yes. fair. We're, we're bringing our attention to areas of scripture that people wanted attention brought to. Yes. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right. Ready? Lot. Ooh. From Gwen. Yeah. I would appreciate some insight into why Lot would have offered his daughters in Genesis 19. Following Jewish tradition, Lot's daughters were not married, but may have been betrothed. Mm-hmm. For their father to offer them up seems so very strange to me. I do realize it was a different time and era, but considering Jewish customs, I find this very odd. It seems almost like he was protecting the guests as opposed to his own daughters. Mm-hmm. How horrible and how frightening for them. Yes. Am I missing something here? No. Am I having a, <laughs> am I having a hard time understanding this and would appreciate some input? Thank you kindly, Gwen. Gwen, I know. This is rough. This is so rough. This is one of those this is one of those chapters where we realize how separated we are culturally from the ancient Near Eastern culture of Abraham and Lot which was very brutal. Um so the the one thing that you the one thing that you are missing cuz you're not missing anything in in that's explicitly talked about in the text itself. You're right. The text does say that Lot's daughters were engaged, they were betrothed, so they were treated as if they were already married. They were already spoken for, but they just hadn't come together in a union yet. So they had not yet moved out of Lot's um, authority and into the authority of their um, their husband's patriarchal family. So whoever the patriarchal head of their husband's family was would be their new authority figure. So they had not yet made that final transfer, but they were almost there. There was already a binding contract on Lot's daughters. So there would have been, it would have been a a big issue, presumably, for Lot's daughters had Lot 
actually given them up to the crowd or had, had the crowd accepted Lot's offer of his daughters. But the one cultural element that a lot of, a lot of people now aren't aware of is the hospitality culture of the ancient Near East. So when, uh, when, um, uh, a family head, a patriarch accepted a, a stranger or a traveler into their care, they were under the protection of that patriarch. And it was societally known that if you were a good host, that you treated that person as if they, they were better than your family. So you did everything that you could to protect them. So culturally, the idea of Lot offering his daughters I don't think it would have been that shocking uh, to the culture of that time. It's very shocking to us today because we value life in it in a different way and our system is structured differently. Um, but I think what's really interesting is that God doesn't allow this to happen um, in, in Lot's case. And we see that protection of Lot. And I'm not saying that God did this in every case because he obviously did not do this in every case. There are human atrocities that span the ages, right? That God didn't stop. But the, the point of Genesis 19 and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the point of it is established earlier on in Genesis 18, where we see Abram, we see God bringing this issue. Sodom and Gomorrah had reached a, uh, a moral apex of crud. Right, they were as bad as you could get. They were like the people where I think we're supposed to take from this. They were like the people before Noah's flood, whose essentially they had given over their free will to sin. They had hardened their hearts so much that every intention and thought of their heart was evil. Okay, because we we see Abram going back and forth with God. You know, if there's if there's fifty righteous people, if there's forty, if there's thirty, if there's ten, right? then don't destroy the city. And God's like, yeah, for the sake of that many, I'm not going to destroy the city. Yep, 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 yep. Knowing that there isn't that. And, and so one of the whole points of Genesis 19 is God coming in to rescue the righteous. And we're not talking righteous in behavior. Lot had chosen to live in one of the most perverse societies in the ancient world. He had chosen that. He could have left. He chose not to. He was a wealthy guy, and yet he chose not only to live there, but, but to make a family alliance with this society by marrying his daughters into it. So Lot is not righteous in action, but Lot still trusted in God. And so that was, that was considered as righteousness, right? I mean, we can read about this in Hebrews as well. This, this concept. So God sends these angels in there and they save Lot's daughters. They save Lot. So though Lot's just doing what's culturally expected of him, even if it's evil, I do think that it's evil. God still stops the evil. And we see God's hand here in the Abrahamic line and in the Abrahamic family, even when they make evil decisions bad decisions. We see God protecting them, not because they're amazing, not because they're righteous, but because God has a plan of redemption that he wants to work out through the Abrahamic line, 
right? Because Christ is going to come through the line of Abraham. Now, not through the line of Lot specifically, but we see God's character being drawn out here as a rescuer of the righteous, a God who doesn't demand perfection in action, but does require trust and does require repentance. Uh, you know, for for that salvation. So, and and I think that's also why you see Lot's wife looking back and turning into a pillar of salt. She's not repentant. She's longing for the evil of the city, things of that nature. She's not willing to follow the word of God, right? The word of God given to them was flee and don't look back. And she's not willing yeah. to follow the word of God. And so she reaps the consequences of her own actions. Yeah, yeah. So I hope that no, hope that's that good because even when the looking back things, it's not like. Oh, someone tripped, and I and I mm. and I go help them up because they're climbing up the mountain. I'm like, ah, oh, I looked back. It's not like that. Yeah, it's not like an accident. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, yeah. no. This is this is yes. this is judgment based on: Are you going to follow the word of God or not? Are you going to trust the word of God? Because trusting in the word of God is accounted as righteousness. Yes, exactly. Right. So, are you going to trust in the word of God or are you not? And if you choose not to trust in the word of God, you're on your own. Yeah, you're gonna reap judgment. I totally agree. Yeah. It, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I would offer that as an element of the story that you're missing in that ancient Near Eastern context of the of, of offering right. hospitality. And when you accept a stranger underneath your care, your honor is on the line with how you right. treat them. So very brutal, right. and and you know I think I think a very solid case can be made for evil in the actions that the that Lot. Lot was going oh, to commit. Easily. Um, yeah. But we see, see God rescue. Right. We see God rescue. But you'll often see even prophets do something evil. Yep. It, uh, constantly. Constantly, yep. right? It's like Abraham. Yep. Abraham, right? Gives up Sarah. Yep. So it's like, Gives up Sarah twice. Right. Does the whole thing with Hagar. Sarah dies and he's like, right. boom, I get to marry someone else. Yes, seven right. kids. Man, Abraham. Right. Calm down. Yeah. Okay. But even still, <laughs> uh, I would say this also, because uh, Gwen was saying, by reading Jewish tradition and Jewish customs and considering mm -hmm. them, I would say this is pre-Judaism. So this is like... Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, so it's like you you can't, because that would be anachronistic. They're basically just being like, oh, let's apply what's happening. Even second temple It's period. much better. It's mu it's much more accurate to look at the ancient Near Eastern customs from the area of that, exactly. of that time. Which luckily we have. Like we, yes. we, we're able to look into those things yeah. today. As something, if, as a side note, just... For the reflections, I keep saying. It's, it's <laughs> for additional, the reflections. additional reflections on this. Okay, it's a good time to right. reflect for the beginning of January. There's, Hit us with a reflection now. Look. All right. So, um, <laughs> do I have this stuff up? Do I have all this stuff in, in, in the right proper place? Okay. So, anyways, uh, one thing I think is really interesting in the text is that uh, early in Genesis, the way cities are—I shouldn't say demonized—but they're they're kind of there's a natural. Uh, reading the text that makes the cities the bad place and like the rural areas a good place. Not completely. And I'm not saying that this is actually true, but hear me out for a second because there, there's a reading here that, that happens here. So one, for one, in the very beginning, after Cain kills Abel, right? Uh, Cain knows his wife and conceives his son named Enoch. And when he, uh, when he did this happened, he built a city and he named the city after his son Enoch, right? Anyways, uh, and then it continues here. Right, then, he, then through the city, Lamech comes out. Lamech is evil and all these different things. Then it continues with um, Genesis 11. Um, in Genesis 11, uh, the Tower of Babel. Uh, it says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the, in the heavens. So it's, it's not just a tower, it's a city. 
So you have this constant process of like, there's something to do with like mankind getting together for their own ambitions, uh, distinct from God, that's accumulating in the cities. I'm not saying cities are evil. Hear me out. There's a narrative happening here that's trying to paint a picture about something. Anyways, and also too, when we come to Sodom and Gomorrah, we see here that um, it says, uh, then the Lord uh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities in all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Okay, so what's interesting here is like, once again, then you see the destruction of cities happening. Um, not yeah. all cities, but some cities. But, but yes, yeah, yeah, for of sure. Course. I'm not, I mean, we're not yeah. demonizing cities, but there's a, there's a parallel being drawn in the text. It's not supposed to be like, oh, all cities are evil. It's not, that's not the parallel being drawn. There is a parallel being drawn between uh, Abraham, who's called out of Ur, right, to come to the wilderness, right, to what? Start a new people, mm-hmm. right? He's called into the wilderness. And what do we see in the Genesis beginning account? We see God starting things in chaos in the wilderness and pulling them out to start something new. Mm-hmm. And so that's what he does with Abraham. He brings him out to the wilderness, to the chaos, to start something new. And what do we see here? And when he destroys the city, he not only destroys the inhabitants and the city itself, but everything that grew in the ground. He makes it uninhabitable. Yeah. Why? To start something new. Mm-hmm. So you see this constant process happening, not only with people, but with the destruction, right? And um, there's just a relationship there to do with the, the people and the ground and the things that are living, right? From They go from in a, you know, a, a, a place where people are building things to make a name for themselves, but like, like Cain did and like the Tower of Babel did, but like Sodom and Gomorrah did, uh, all accumulating together in the, for that sake. And then at the same time, for people who are being called by God to, to a more humble life. Anyways, it's just, I just, there's an interesting parallels that are beginning there. And then it, it kind of typifies in Revelation, um, when, you know, with the 666 and the, and the great Babylon the Great and all these different things, the city of evil. Obviously, you have Jerusalem. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. So, so, so it's just, yeah. you see what I'm saying? Okay, because because so, when we pull it back yes. and we look at the purpose for cities, cities and human survival make a lot of sense. And I don't think that the Bible does demonize city, but I, cities, but I think what the Bible does do is it, it does comment on the potential for great evil in cities because where a lot of mankind is gathered, there's potential for a lot of evil if you're not focusing on following God, right? And because and, 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 we do see yes. that. But when you when you look at it from a human survival standpoint, it makes sense that Cain built a city. We can argue that because God told him to that he would be a restless wanderer, right. that he shouldn't have built a city. Um, but it, but the reason why cities make sense for human survival is because you can band together and share resources, well, of right? Course, but and you can build a wall and protect yourself right. from raiders and, and, and things like that. So cities make a lot of sense for human survival, but unfortunately they also make a lot of sense if you are trying to launch some sort of spiritual okay, right. rebellion so against God. So very practically, I'm not saying, once again, yeah. that cities are wrong. What I'm saying here is that the, this, it's <clears throat> Genesis and even it continues on is making a comment, mm-hmm. it's making a typological, uh, you could say prophetic, it's making a comment on the relationship between cities and, and let's say non-cities. But even still, because we know at the very end, you have the city of Jerusalem, yeah, right? The great city to come, and you have the city of Babylon, right? So you have these polar opposite cities. One is good, one is bad. It's kind of like, the, right? That's kind mm-hmm. of the principles there. So I'm not saying cities are evil. That's not, that's not the point being made here, right? There's a city of God that is coming. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. But the point here is that it's all these cities that are beginning 
We're all like in the, to make a name for ourselves. Right. Yeah. Babel right? specifically. Right. Yes. Specifically. And then mankind is being, uh, Abraham specifically is being pulled out of that. Mm-hmm. It's pulling, being pulled out of this, this system that's being built up. Right. Anyways, and is being drawn out to create a people for himself. And I just, I just, I just think it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, especially when you look at, especially when you look at ancient Mesopotamian cities specifically, where each city had a patron god. So I think you can make an argument from the ancient Near Eastern culture as well that because ancient people in the Middle East, they were, you know, very spiritual, very religious people, right? They, they, they did choose deities for right. their cities that, that were pr- protective deities. I mean, you look at Ur, you look at that, that Abraham was pulled out of and it was fully involved in pagan worship of idols. Right. Right? It wasn't worshiping God. So it was a city of rebellion against God in that sense. Right. I'm not saying that there can't be cities that don't rebel against God right. and that have God as their as their authority. Just that in practice, in reality, you know, we see in the history books and we also see coming out of the ground that there were a lot of ancient cities that had pagan gods at at their forefront. Right. So and and I mean and that was what Jerusalem was supposed to not be, right? That was the place of God's temple. It was supposed to be his city. Well, that's it got right. messed up, but it's gonna well, come and, back around. And that's what's so interesting about it. It's like the cities all get corrupted, right? They, yeah. all, get, they all start worshiping demons yeah. and false gods. Yeah. Right? And the gods And calling, some were founded that way. It's, exactly. And yeah. God's calling them out of that, mm-hmm. right? To start new. Anyways, so it's interesting that that's how human history starts. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's like it's interesting. So Rebellion. The, it's, there's a narratival and typological painting being being made here. Anyways. Corey? Yeah, that's all else? I got. That's all I got. I think, how about you? Do you have any other comments no, before th- we go? I, th- I think we're good. That's it. <laughs> okay, guys. So that concludes our, our season two, episode one of the weekend show, Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. Please pop down in the comment section below any questions that you have for upcoming episodes or any follow-up questions or comments that you want to make about this episode. If you liked it, if you loved it, if you hated our answers, I want to hear about it. And until next time, until next week, happy reading and studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.